Good morning. It's great to be with you today. You may be seated. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I bring greetings to you from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is one of the many ministries your church supports through the Southern Baptist Convention, and also from Sojourn Church Midtown, where I serve in inner city Louisville as one of the teaching pastors at Sojourn Church Midtown, and enjoy doing that. I've been at the Southern Seminary and at Sojourn for about 15 years now. And uh, thank you for your hospitality, for having us here, for all that you've uh, provided for us. I thank you for that. And it's good to be with you this day. Well, there's a truth that I want you to see, I want you to get. Is this going to frame everything else we do? And it's simply this. It is difficult to flourish in a place where you don't fit. It is difficult to flourish in a place where you don't fit. I learned this several years ago at what's called the St. Louis City Museum. Has anybody ever been to the St. Louis City Museum in St. Louis, Missouri? You ought to take your kids there, your grandkids there. It's a great place to be. We've got a picture of it, I believe, that we can put up on the screen here, the St. Louis City Museum. It is basically a 12-story building that they have turned into a massive jungle gym. It really has nothing to do with being a museum. It has to do with the fact that you can go floor to floor through slides, through tunnels. There are no elevators or steps that you have to take. You slide, you tunnel, you swing from floor to floor to floor for 12 stories in this particular building. And so I took my kids there several years ago, and I am one of those people who I am going to try everything. Every ride that there is or anything like that, so any roller coasters or any adventures like this, I'm going to be in there trying it. So I'm in there trying this, I'm in there playing and doing all the stuff, climbing through all of this. And as you can see, on the outside of this, there's a lot of stuff out there, including a couple of airplanes, there's a, a school bus, all sorts of things that are just all in this outdoors part. And so we're in this, this particular arch-shaped sort of tunnel up there that you can see. And there's this, this metal ribbed tube and climbing through this metal ribbed tube and going up to got to the top of it. And as you get closer and closer to the apex of that, it gets narrower and narrower and smaller and smaller. And so as we're going through this with a lot of children before and behind, so going through this and all the people in front of me, including my own children, they get to that top and it gets really small and they pull their legs through and kind of put their feet forward and slide, kind of shimmy down that way, slide down, put their feet forward. So I'm going to do this. And I get to that top and I start to put my legs through and my, my legs don't go through there. <laughs> and then I can't get my feet in front of me and I'm trying and there's all these little kids behind me going, why is that man up there? Stop. And like, Be quiet. And so I'm at the top trying to get my legs through there and it's just not happening. And something occurs to me at 50 feet above the ground that probably should have occurred to me on the ground, and that is that maybe this place wasn't made for me. <laughs> maybe this was made for people who were more like 5 and 15 rather than 50. Maybe this is not a place that is made for me. It's difficult to flourish in a place where you don't fit. It was difficult for me to flourish and enjoy in this moment because I didn't fit in the place where I was. Now here's the truth I want you to get from that. You are going to increasingly find that your faith doesn't fit in the world around you. 
You're going to find that increasingly because as sexual ethics change, as, as merely the claim of, of faith in Jesus Christ being the only way to be made right with God, those claims that we have made as Christians for centuries are suddenly becoming claims that people, it's not just that they don't like it, they view it as harmful. They view your perspective from Scripture on the nature of human sexuality and sexual ethics and on salvation through Jesus. People view that not merely as an annoyance, but something that they see as harmful to the social order. You are in a place where your faith increasingly will not fit. Where you're feeling the pinch of trying to be in a place where you don't fit. And it is difficult to flourish in a place where you don't fit. And so here's what I want to talk about today. How do we flourish? How do we keep our faith in a culture where our faith doesn't fit? Now here's the encouraging and the beautiful thing, the wonderful thing. We are not the first generation of people to face this question. You see, Christians have in different times and places, Christians have faced this question over and over and over. They faced it in the first century in the time of Jesus. But not only that, believers in God faced this even before that three and a half thousand years ago. Moses leading the Israelites, they were going into a land at one point in which they were going into a place where their faith in their God didn't fit. And so I want us to look at this at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 1. Let's stand together in reading in the reading for the reading of God's holy word. Deuteronomy 6.1. This is the command. The statutes and ordinances that the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. This is Moses speaking to the children of Israel. So that you may follow them in the land you are about to enter and possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes and commands I am giving you. Your son and your grandson so that you may have a long life. Listen or hear, O Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you a land flowing with milk and with honey. Oh, listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be on your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be like a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would give you a land with large and beautiful cities you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, cisterns you didn't dig, vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant, when you eat and you are satisfied, be careful, be careful not to forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Let's pray. Our God, may your words and your truth be what is remembered 
and what is revered. May we love you more as a result of having been in this place together. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So here the Israelites stand on the edge of a land where their faith does not fit. Let me set the scene for just a moment. Because you see, this generation, their parents had stood at the edge of this land before. Their parents had stood at the edge of this land and their parents did not go into the land because they did not have the faith in God to trust in him and to go into the land that God had promised them. And so their parents had been the ones who had seen the Red Sea part. Their parents had been the ones who had seen the plagues in Egypt. But this generation, they had seen miracles as well. They had seen manna fall from the sky. They had seen God bring water from a rock. And they are here in this place preparing to do what their parents 40 years earlier had not done, which is to enter into the land of promise. And they are standing here in this place getting ready to go into a land where their faith doesn't fit. You see, there is already faith in that land. It's just faith in the wrong gods. Because they are worshiping, they're worshiping in the land. They're worshiping, for example, a god known as Baal, this god of fields and who, got, who brings the, the fruit from the fields. And what they believed about Baal, this god Baal, is that he was able to, through, through a rising of the sun and the changing of the seasons, it was he who brought about the fruitfulness of the fields. There was also another god, a goddess, Asherah that they worshipped in this land who was the goddess of fertility. She was a goddess who would bring you children, supposedly, and would keep those children healthy. But the Israelites, they believed in a different god, Yahweh, that they believed to be the god who, who, had, who had created all things, who was the god above all gods, and that these other gods were not real gods. And Moses has seen and led both of these two generations. But Moses will soon be taken from them. Moses is concerned. And he's concerned, and you see his concern in something that is, that is repeated seven times in the book of Deuteronomy. There is one phrase that is repeated seven times in the book of Deuteronomy. You see it in, in chapter 6 and verse 12. And the phrase is, take care lest you forget. You see Moses' concern that he repeats seven times in this book is take care lest you forget. Be careful lest you forget. Moses' concern is that they will forget the truth of the God who they worship when they go in a land when their faith, where their faith doesn't fit. He's concerned they're going to forget. And he's not talking about forgetting in the sense of forgetting who God is. He's in the sense of forgetting to worship him and to see him as the only one from whom you have true life. And this God, Yahweh, the God they worship, he is the one who has taken them out of Egypt. And he is bringing them in, it says, to a land of milk and honey. And you may read that phrase and you think, why on earth? is milk and honey. That just sounds like a really sticky land. Why is it a land of milk and honey? But I want you to understand why it's milk and honey. Because beekeeping and having cattle in pastures is not something you can do if you're always on the move. 
It's something that requires you to settle in to a particular place for a long period of time. And God is bringing them into this land. And by saying it is a land flowing with milk and honey, he's pointing to the blessings of the land. But he's also pointing to the fact that I will keep you in that land if you are faithful to me. You will have longevity in this particular land. And so if you look at this, Moses, as they go into this land, is concerned that they will forget the truth of God. But Moses not only is concerned with this, he has a plan that is not his own plan, but a plan from God. Moses has a plan for keeping them in the faith, in this land flowing with milk and honey. A plan for them where that they can hold on to the faith even in a place where their faith doesn't fit. He has a plan for them so that their faith can flourish in a place where they don't fit. And if you look at the plan in that it seems absurd because it's that, you see it, well, let's take a look at it, verse 7. It says in verse 7, repeat these things to your children. Talk about them when you sit down, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. That's Moses' plan. <laughs> His plan is not, as you might think, to say, you know what? The priests should pass on the faith from generation to generation. That is not Moses' plan. You would think it might be the priest because if you look at the Old Testament in the books of the law, there are more than a dozen chapters that give every detail of the priesthood. Why doesn't he say the priests are the ones who will bring the faith from one generation to the next? He doesn't. Or maybe even prophets. There are a couple of chapters, even in Deuteronomy, chapters 13 and 18, that talk about the importance of prophets. But it's not the priests, and it's not the prophets to whom Moses gives this plan, this command. It is the parents. The parents. Take care and repeat these things to your children. He doesn't say for the priests to do this. He doesn't say for the prophets to do this. He says for the parents to do this. This is his plan for helping them to thrive, to flourish in a place where their faith doesn't, doesn't fit. And I want us to think about this term he uses in verse 7, where often in your Bibles it's translated, repeat them. There's different ways of translating that. But it's, it's a unique word, and that's why there's so many different words used to translate it. You see, it's, the word is something that is also used for whetting a knife, for etching something in stone, for being a sculptor or a carver who carves a statue. It is something that describes a repeated action that has a long-term effect. It's doing it over and over and over and over and over. And in each time you do it, it only has a minimal impact. But by doing it over and over and over, it has a long-term effect. That's what he says to parents. That's what he says, particularly to the fathers here. He says, make sure that you are over and over and over and over repeating, etching this so that it has a long-term and a lasting effect. It's what he's telling them to do right here in verse 7 when he gives them this plan for how the faith will be passed on from one generation to the next in a place where their faith does not fit. 
Now, we don't have time to look at it in detail, but I do want you to see just the beauty of the structure of the Word of God right here. I've got a chart that we can look at just to see this right here. It's a beautiful thing if you look at the way this is done. This is Moses writes three different truths, then he backs up, says the same three truths again, and then he summarizes it at the end. It's a beautiful way of structuring this text. And so there are three truths that he has for them in this text. And the first truth is to fear one God. To fear one and only one God. Now you may think that is is not that radical. I mean, fear one God. Why is that such a radical thing? When he says in verse 4, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is known as the Shema. Jewish people still say this to this day over and over. It is something they repeat. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Fear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord alone. This is radical for their day, though. And really, it's radical for our day as well. One and only one God. You see, in their culture, nobody believed in just one God. This really was a radical thing. The idea of believing in one and only one God. Most people were what are called henotheists is the term for it. That is to say they believed that each God had a certain territory or a certain area of life that they were over. And so you might have one God that was in the region of Canaan. But then when you left and went to Egypt, you went to another God. Gods were regional. That's what they believed at that time, and that gods had specializations, where one god might be for fertility, one god might be for the fields. Each god did something different. And here's what Moses is challenging them with when he gives them these words. Will you trust that the same God who brought you out of Israel is the God who will help you, who will sustain you in this land? That's what he's asking them. Will you trust that the God who brought you out of Egypt is really enough? Because here was the temptation they were going to face. Is that, yeah, that God who brought us out of Egypt, great war God. He was a great battle God. We liked him. He was a good God. You go, God. You got us out of Egypt. But then when they got in the land and they were wrestling with the different issues that they faced in settling into the land, would they believe that the same God who got them out of Egypt would also provide them with children and provide them with enough to eat? Because they would be tempted to go to Baal if they were hungry or if they wanted children or their children were sick to go to Asherah. They would be tempted to run to other gods. And he says to follow one God. And he doesn't just say follow this God. He says, love, love him. Do you realize this is unprecedented in the ancient world? You might serve a God, you might fear a God, but nobody loved their God. This is an innovation that was unheard of in their time, the thought that you would love a particular God. And so he says, stay faithful, love this God. Here's the second truth you see here. All that you will gain in the land is a gift. It's all a gift. Embrace God's gift. Everything you're going to get in that land is a gift. Look at verse 11. So beautiful. 
He says, you're going to get houses full of every good thing you didn't fill them with, cisterns you didn't even dig, vineyards and olive trees you didn't plant. When you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who gave you all of this. You are going to receive what you never earned or deserved. Can we just pause and recognize that? That everything you receive that is good, you did not receive it because you earned it or deserved it. You deserve, you got it because God gave it to you. You may be thinking, I, 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 my house, my, my income, all those things, I earned those, I deserve those. But who gave you the strength to be able to do the work that it took for you to earn and deserve those? God. God. Everything is a gift from God that is good in your life. Not your efforts, but it is God who gave it to you. God alone gives you every good thing. And we call that as believers in Jesus Christ, we call that grace. His grace. You get what you never deserved. And he says, you're getting grace. You're getting these things you never deserved as a gift. And the last thing we see in this text is because you fear one God, because everything is a gift from him, there's only one story worth remembering. So make the time to tell God's story. Take a look at verse 12. This is what to say when, a, this is the, the, the question that Moses is posing to them really. Are you going to remember? Be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Now, that's really important for us to understand what Moses is doing is telling the same thing twice. Because what that means is verses 20 through 23 tell us how to do what he says to do in verse 12. So he says in verse 12, make sure you don't forget then in verses 20 through 23, what he does is tells you how not to forget. And look at what he says in verses 20 through 23. When your son asks you in the future, what is the meaning of the decrees, the statutes, the ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded us? You tell him. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Before our eyes, the Lord inflicted great and devastating signs and wonders on Egypt, on Pharaoh, and on all his household. But he brought us out from there in order to lead us in and give us the land he swore to our fathers. You see how he says to take care not to forget? Tell your children the story. Every time they ask, why do we do this? Connect it to the story of God. Tell the story is the way that you can pass it on to the next generation and not forget. And understand, all those other gods, the goddess, the god Baal, the goddess Asherah, they had their own stories. <laughs> you see, they, each one of those had its own story, its own narrative that they told about that. And he's saying right here, the way you answer the questions is by your God who brought you out of Egypt. That is why you do what you do. How do you keep the faith and flourish in a place where you don't fit? Keep telling the story. Never stop telling the story. Tell the story of the one God over and over and over. Never stop telling the story. And make sure the story gets passed on. And what do we do with this in our lives today? How do we today keep the faith in a place where our faith doesn't fit? 
I want to look at a handful of truths, just applying this to your lives. And the first one is simply this. Learn to look at your children in the light of God's story. Learn to look at your children in the light of God's story. I want us to understand that this is why I emphasize story over and over and over and over. It's because we as human beings, we are storytelling creatures. We are creatures who, we, we tell stories, we make sense of our lives through stories. And here's what I mean by that. All the things that happen in your life, you weave those somehow into a narrative, a story that you can tell to try to make sense of your life. You do it. You're, you're a place in your family. There are stories that you can think of that your parents told that kind of make you understand what it means to be a person in the family you grew up in. And right now as I say that, you're thinking, yeah, there's stories that my mom and dad told as to what it means to be a whatever is your last name. That's what it means to be this. We are people who make sense of everything in light of stories. Here's what's funny. Even atheists recognize that. I was recently reading an article by an atheist author called Grooming, Gossip, and the Evolution of Language. A fascinating and absurd article. But it was serious. The, the person was being totally serious. What the person was trying to do is explain, on the basis of naturalistic evolution, why it is that human beings tell stories. Why do we make sense of life through stories? How do, why is it? And he, he has no reference point of God. He's trying to make sense of this without God. And here's what the author concludes. I'm just letting you know this. This is what he said. He said, long ago, your ancestors, they would pick nits off of each other and make grunting noises. And the ones who could make the most interesting grunting noises, those were the ones who were the healthiest because they did more picking of nits on one another that could carry diseases. And as language evolved, then people started using words and telling stories. And the ones that were healthiest and reproduced most often are the ones who did the best stories because they did the best nitpicking. I am totally making, not making this up. Okay, That is exactly what the person said. I've got a better solution. Maybe we're created in the image of a God who makes sense of things by stories, okay? I just think that makes a lot more sense than that we were just cosmic nitpickers in the past. I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. But that's what this person, but here's the thing. Even this atheist recognizes how stories form us and shape us. He can't escape that. He can't escape that reality, but I believe that we tell stories because God is a God who is making sense of the world by telling a great story. And that story is grounded in who Jesus is. And I want us to understand that the more we can tell God's story and connect every part of life to God's story, the more we are able to pass the truth to the next generation. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to teach you how to tell God's story in a good way. And so I've done a lot of years of children's ministry and youth ministry. So we're going to do it in a way that makes sense in children's ministry and youth ministry. So here's what you've got to do. Put up your arms like this. And say with me, God made the world good. Good. And then you say, sin made the world groan. And then you say, Jesus broke the power of sin. And God is making the world new. That's God's story. 
That's the only story that makes sense of all the stories. So let's do it together, all of us together. And if somebody next to you is not doing that, just when you do this, just kind of get them, okay? Like that, okay? All right. So God made the world good. Sin made the world groan. Jesus broke the power of sin, and God is making the world new. That's God's story. That's the only story that makes sense of all the other stories. Learn to see all of life, including your children, in light of that story. And here's what happens when you do that. In that first movement, which in big theological language, we call this creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. Okay? That's what it is in theological language. Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. But in the light of that first movement, do you recognize in light of God's creation, your child is a gift? Pause and think about that. Your child is a gift. Your child is a gift. Your child was not given to you simply as a result of marriage or as something to fulfill your dreams. Your child was not given to you to be somebody who does all the things that you hoped you could do and you didn't. That's not why your child was given to you. Your child wasn't even given to you just to be there to take care of you when you get older. Your child was given to you as a gift of God for God's glory. That's why your child was given to you. That's the purpose of your child. Your child is given to you as a gift for God's glory. There are times when all of us feel annoyed with our children there are times that all of us are frustrated with our children. But in that, those moments, to be able to say, God made the world good. My child is a gift. But in light of that second one, and so God made the world good, sin made the world grown, that's fall. And your child is a sinner. Now, I don't need to convince you of that one. I don't need to make an argument for that one. Your child is a sinner, and you know that your child is a sinner. I mean, here's what I want to emphasize to think about that. Recognize that sin is your child's greatest problem. Not all the other things that may happen. Sin is your child's greatest problem. Because here's what we're all tempted to do as parents. All of us at different times, we sometimes want to discipline our child on the basis of what annoys us most or embarrasses us most instead of dealing with their deeper issue of sin. Here's what I want you to see. We should, as parents, be saving our harshest discipline, not for the things that annoy us or embarrass us, but for the child's sin. And here's what we're often tempted to do to discipline our child most harshly for the things that annoy us or embarrass us instead of dealing most with the things that are sin. I encourage you, if you think about this, my child is a sinner and that's, their most, that's the, the most pressing problem they have. Not the way they annoy me, not the way they've embarrassed me, not them falling short of an artificial standard I may set, but their sin. It helps us rethink the way we discipline our children. Thirdly, Jesus, Jesus broke the power of sin. Your child needs a savior. Sin is your child's greatest problem, but Jesus is your child's greatest need. Of all the needs they may have, Jesus is their greatest need, is to trust in Jesus and to follow him. 
And we can spend so much time aiming our children in so many different directions and forget the one that matters most is that they need Jesus. And last of all, consummation, new creation. God is making the world new. Your child is forever. Do you realize something? If you stand beside your child in eternity, it will not be as parent and child. You will stand beside your child in eternity. You are together in God's presence in eternity as blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you realize that? Your parenthood doesn't last forever. Whether or not they are your brother and sister in Christ, that lasts forever. That's the part that lasts forever. And so here's what I want to just put in front of you as a question. Is this the story that determines your priorities in your home? Is this the story that determines your priorities? It doesn't in most families. Some recent research came out, and here's what it said. When parents were asked, what makes success in parenthood? What, is, what would make your parenthood successful? But here are the three top answers. Number one answer was, my child would be happy. 25% said that. Number two, my child would have good values. Also 25% of parents said that. My child will be financially successful was 22% of parents. Those are the top three answers. Happy, good values, financially successful. None of those lead you to Jesus. None of those lead you to Jesus. None of them is the story of the majestic God of Scripture who does what he does for his glory. None of those get you to Jesus. But even in Christian homes, it's are they happy? Are they financially successful? Do they have good values? None of those get you to Jesus. You see, the Canaanites, they had their gods of fields and fertility. But we have other gods too. Our gods are named happy success values. It's the same gods, just different names. We have our own false gods in our relationships to our children. And if you're wrestling with this, it's like, I don't really know what the story I'm telling in my household is. Let me ask you this question. Let me ask this. What is it that you are most passionate about when you tell it about your child? Or another way to ask this. When you're talking about something to do with your child to somebody you're, in, you're being introduced to, your children, what do you emphasize the most? What are you most excited about telling? That tells you the story you're telling in your household. What you're most excited about when you're talking about something to do with your child. What excites you the most? And if we really think about this, a lot of times it's their financial success, their academic success, their athletic success. Those are the things we're most excited about. And if that's the case, what we are doing is the story we're telling in our household is about that. That's the story that we're telling in our household, and especially to do so many parents are so caught up in, in sports and athletics. And hear me, that's not bad. Sports and athletics are a wonderful gift from God, okay? They are a good gift. Sports, athletics, good gift from God. It's a good gift, but it's a terrible God. And we've made it often not simply a gift, but a God. Hear this, only 2% of kids 
are going to go on to get any form of a sports scholarship. 2%, 100% are going to stand before the throne of God. 0.00075% will go pro in any sport. 100% will stand before God and give an account. What are we emphasizing in our children's lives? So how do we keep our faith and have it flourish in a place where we don't fit? Make sure you see your child in light of God's story. Second one, amateurs tell the story best. The word amateur means for the love of it. Amatore, for the love of it. Amateurs tell the story best. In other words, somebody who's not doing it because they're paid to do it is the one who does the, tells the story best. See, we have a, this tendency in our culture, and it's not entirely bad, to hire somebody for all the things our children need to learn, whether coaches or teachers or whatever it may be. We hire people to do things like that for our kids, and that's not a bad thing. For example, one of my children did several years of ballet. We don't even want to think about me in a ballet outfit teaching my child, okay? We don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about any of you that way. It's good to hire somebody to do things for your kids at times, but... There are some things that it's not about how well it's done that you can't pay somebody else to do because you have the responsibility to do it. There are some things. You, you already know this. Let's just give as an example from some other area of family life. Let's suppose some of you men that your wife has been saying for a while, we need to have a date night. You really need to have a date night. Have it for a while. Need to have a date night. Let's suppose you came home some evening and said, honey, I have the perfect solution tonight. And here's the solution. I've hired a professional dater. And he's an expert at this. He's really good at this. Some of you ladies are like, okay, where's this? You're like, no, this is a bad thing, okay? No, this is not a good thing. And so, and so he, we have hired him. I'm going to stay home with the kids tonight, and he's going to take you out on that date you've been wanting. How well is this going to go? It's not. Why is it not going to go well? Well, it's because of the fact that sometimes it's not how well it's done. It's who's supposed to do it. When it comes to the discipleship of your kids, it's not so much about how well it's done. You may say, I'm not very good at this. And you know what I would say? You're probably right. <laughs> You're probably not very good at it. Okay? That's that, that we get better with practice and nobody starts with being good at it but it's that you're the person who's supposed to do it. And so you keep at it, even if you aren't good at it. That's what I said earlier to do with this text. They were the prophets, they were the priests, but Moses doesn't say prophets or priests. He says the parents are to be discipling their children. And so I just want to encourage you, what are you doing to disciple your kids? And you may say, I don't even know where to start. Well, let's talk about where to start. Why don't you try it sometime this week, simply that you and your spouse both tell your children how you came to know Jesus. It's a good start right there. It's a good start. Just tell them how you came to know Jesus. How about starting a habit of every week after worship service, having a discussion in the car where each person says, here's what I learned from the sermon today. How about that? How about doing what I do every week with my kids? And it doesn't really take that much time. But it's that every week, 
take one of the children out to a coffee shop and we read one chapter of scripture and we have a snack and we talk about it and that's it. That's not that hard. Anybody can do that. It does not take degrees to be able to do that. Start somewhere and do something to disciple your children because amateurs tell the story best. Amateurs tell the story best. Here's the last one. Our faith is passed down so that it can be passed on. It's passed down so that it can be passed on. You are passing the faith down to your children so that people you will never see, people who have not even yet been born, will hear the gospel. That's why you're doing it. You get a hint of that in Deuteronomy 6, where in chapter 6, verse 3, Moses says to be fruitful and multiply, just as was said to Adam and Eve. So we get this idea and recognition that part of what is going on right here is multiply what I'm telling you. And he was talking to biological families in this. Multiply this. Multiply and fill this land with the truth of God. Today, as new covenant believers in the gospel, we have something even more beautiful and better, that we are adopted into God family and we are to be going and spreading the gospel and sharing the gospel throughout the world that's how we're being fruitful and multiplying in the world as the people of God that's passed down so that it could be passed on to the world God gives us children so that their lives can be leveraged so that people in every nation have opportunity to bow before the rightful king of kings that's why God gives us children and something that I tell myself over and over regarding my children and I say it to myself over and over because I need it and it's simply this I would rather my child be on the other side of the world in God's will than next door to me out of God's will and I would rather my child be in a grave in God's will than in a mansion outside God's will that should be our attitude Toward our children. They are given to us for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the nations. Now, if I left you all right here, and I'm not going to leave it right here, I could end up leaving you with a burden of guilt of all the things you haven't done, all the things you ought to do, all the things you still should do. I could leave you with a burden of guilt. Because can we be honest about this for a little bit? Sometimes a successful day at parenting is having the same number of kids at the end of the day you started with in the beginning. There are some days in parenting where all you're hoping for is that they have enough resources in the future to pay for the therapy they will need. Okay? That's, that's, I mean, parenting is hard and none of us are great at it. I've done, talked to thousands, tens of thousands of people about parenting, and here's what I've never heard somebody to say, come and say, you know what, I'm just killing it at parenting. I'm so good at it. Never, never. All of us feel like we are flailing and failing as parents. Can we be honest about that? And we're just trying to do it the best we can. And because of that, if I were to leave you here, I could leave you with a burden of guilt. But we live as people of the gospel. We live as people of the gospel. And you may be saying, this looks really hard, and I feel inadequate, and I feel like I'm going to fail. And here's what I'm going to say to you. It is hard, you are inadequate, and you will fail. But the gospel is good. But the gospel is good. Hear this, hear this. 
If you are in Christ, your heavenly Father can never think anything less of you than he thinks of Jesus. And what he thinks of Jesus is this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Your performance as a parent is not the basis of God's love for you in Christ. It is simply what Jesus did, what Jesus has done. And I never want to leave you with telling you the things you should do in a way that leaves you wondering or questioning or not remembering what Jesus has already done. What Jesus has already done matters far more than what you will ever do. So hear this and recognize the beauty of what God has done, and here's what that does. It gives you the freedom and the confidence to know I have nothing to prove because Jesus already loves me. And when I fail, I can own it and say I failed, and I can go on and try again because my performance is not the basis of what God thinks of me. My performance has never been the basis of God's love for me. The only basis of God's love for you is Jesus. And if you have trusted in Jesus, your place in God's love is settled. It is done. It is guaranteed, even in your failures. And what that should make us do is to say, I can do it. I can try again, not because I'm great at it, but because he's good. Because he's good. And he gives me the power to do what I can't. And he sees my feeble efforts and he loves me in them. That is the gospel. And any parenting we do apart from the gospel will lead us only to despair. It leads you to despair. It leads you to frustration. It leads you to hiding from your your failures. But the gospel lets you be honest about your failures and try that's the gospel. And so there I was. I was up there at the top of that arch, and I was not going to be able to get my feet forward to slide down. There were all those kids behind me, and I sure couldn't go backwards. And so there I was. What do I do? So here's what I did. The only thing I could do. I yelled out at my oldest daughter just in case. I said, grab me. And I put head first, and I slid all the way down. And, God be praised, I was able to grab something and I didn't do any damage to myself and I made it through. When you're stuck in a place where your faith doesn't fit, sometimes you just got to jump in. And that's what I want you to do. Just jump in and do it. And know there is somebody far more reliable than my daughter who is there to catch you at the end when you fall. Know that there's somebody far better. That your God catches you and he loves you. Him be glory. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.